As we talk about longing for heaven, this has really come to my mind. Um, Just as we've been caring for Helen's mother and especially her father, one of the hardest parts in caring for her dad is that uh, often he'll have a big sigh and he'll say, which in Chinese means, I'm going to die. Now in Chinese it could be translated, I want to die, but the context of the way he says it is, I'm going to die. And it's, he says it with um, some fear, and it's, it's hard to hear. And we've been talking with him about heaven and about his relationship with God. And so he doesn't say it as much, and um, sometimes he's praying to God now, and uh, we just continue to, to pray for him. Uh, but one of the things I've realized is one of the best gifts we can give our kids is that the assurance that they know we are going to heaven, that we have a personal relationship with the Lord. And that is a beautiful, beautiful gift we can, can give our kids. But it's made me think again. I've, I've talked before, I guess, years ago at one of the retreats about heaven, but this has just been fresh on my mind, and I think it's, it's so important. You know, in business, they say you start with the end in mind, and your goal drives everything you do. But for some reason... In Christianity, we rarely talk about heaven. We rarely talk about the end. We rarely think about the end. But actually, we should because it drives everything that we do. In my own life, years ago, um, I was thinking about heaven and the idea of eternity. And I became extremely depressed about it. And I was just filled with fear. And and I thought about it. I didn't want to think about it, but I thought about it a little bit more. And I felt... Eternity, that is so long. It goes on forever. I'm, I'm going to be bored. And I felt a sense of despair that this whole life and eternity, why, why live it if it's going to end up being boring and, and having despair? And I mean, I actually began feeling so much despair. I thought, is, I contemplated suicide just from the point of, do I want to live this life if, if it's that meaningless, if it's going to end in despair? And so then the Lord, uh, in His goodness, I stumbled upon a book called Heaven. The Lord brought to mind this book, Heaven. I began to read this book, and it began to transform the way I thought about heaven. And I have had a transformation in my life, and I have so much more hope now, a vibrant hope about the future. Um, the other day we were talking with the kids and Helen about our, my father-in-law when he says, oh, I'm going to die. And I said, you know, I'm thankful that uh, I, I can say I'm going to die and I'm going to go to heaven. And it's something I look forward to. And I said, if by any chance, Helen or Teo or Kia, you die before me, I want you to do this. When you see Jesus, you tell him that your dad says he sends all of his love and that he can't wait to see you face to face. And that, that came from my heart. That's what I want them to tell him. Because they're going to get, if they happen to get to see him before I do. That I can't wait to see God face to face. And it's important. We need to start with the end in mind. But I think there's several reasons that Christians aren't excited about heaven. One is we're afraid of death. We've never been through death. Death doesn't seem like a good thing to have to go through. I remember reading a wonderful 
uh, book uh, by Corey Tenboom. I really encourage you to read any of her books. She's so practical and down to earth. And she was talking about visiting a woman in the hospital, and and the woman confessed to her, "I am so afraid of death. I, I, I've never gone through it. I don't know what it's going to be like, but it doesn't sound or feel good." And Corey Tenboom asked her, he said, "Well, you know Jesus, right?" Yes. And you know, he's promised that he's never going to leave or forsake you, right? He said, yes. He said, you know, he, he has gone through death. He knows what it's like. And he'll be there with you. He's promised never to leave or forsake you. So we don't need to, to fear death. Then this is a big one. We often think that it's going to be boring. This, there's a, I love the far side, and this is one of my favorites. I hate this. I hate to love this far side. I wish I'd bought, brought a magazine. <laughs> Why is that funny? Because we can identify with that. There, there's something in many of us we think, man, heaven, when I get there, what am I going to do but sit around strumming this crummy harp on and on and on? It's going to be boring. Oh, I wish I'd brought a magazine. And, and this is so far from the truth. I heard that one pastor was, said, The thought of heaven depresses me. I can't stand the thought of that endless tedium to float around in the clouds with nothing to do but strum a harp. Oh, it's so terribly boring. Boring? In our arrogance, do we think that the God that created the universe doesn't know how to have fun? That flung the stars into space? Didn't he create fun? Didn't he create everything good? How dare us think that God's going to create a heaven that's boring. But somehow, I believe this is the way Satan is attacking many Christians, trying to get us to believe that it is going to be boring. When asked what someone expected after death, they replied, Well, I suppose I shall enter into eternal bliss. But I really wish you wouldn't bring up such depressing subjects. <laughs> Listen to what John Eldridge, who wrote uh, several great books, he, he says very perceptively, Nearly every Christian I have spoken with has some idea that eternity is an unending church service. We will have settled on an image of a never-ending sing-along in the sky. One great hymn after another, forever and ever, amen. And our heart sinks forever and ever. That's it? That's the good news? And then we sigh and we feel guilty that we're not more spiritual. We lost heart and we turn once more to, find, to the present to find what life we can. I think there's a lot of truth in that. I mean, even for me, I remember thinking, oh, I, I love to worship. Sometimes, wow, I've worshiped maybe over up to an hour sometimes, and I've really been it, but after a while, I just kind of, I've had enough. You know, we're going to do that forever? Really? It's because we have this wrong conception of what heaven's going to be like. Um, I was reading, someone mentioned that in Huckleberry Finn, uh, in the Adventures of Tom Story, Sawyer, 
Huckleberry Finn's talking with his aunt or somebody, and she's telling him about heaven. It says, She went on and told me about the good place. She said all a body would have to do there was go around all day with a harp and sing forever and ever. So I, I didn't think much of it. I asked her if she reckoned Tom Sawyer would go there, and she said, Oh, not by a considerable sight. Well, I was glad about that because I wanted him and me to be together. And many people are like that, thinking, wow, it's not going to be a fun place, not going to be exciting. And yet, we will live in a resurrected, imperishable body. We'll be with Jesus. We will see him face to face. We'll be with people that we love on a resurrected earth with gardens and rivers and mountains and untold adventures. Now that would have got Huck Finn's attention if he'd heard what heaven is really going to be like, how amazing it truly is. So we think it's going to be boring. Then some people are turned off thinking we'll just be spirits floating around. Many have this idea that uh, when we die, our soul goes to heaven and it just floats around and, and we can't imagine, we can't identify with that. Um, But as we look at scriptures, we'll see, no, we're going to have physical bodies and be in a physical place. That's going to be a lot like, or it's going to have similarities to this world that we're in. That God's actually going to restore the earth. It's going to be very much, in many ways, like the original that he created. The original Garden of Eden. A place of paradise. Also, we've gotten way too focused on creating a comfortable life here rather than on focusing on knowing Jesus. Um, Even this week, I was reading an interesting article where an author was saying that he thinks part of the reason, and I don't want to get into too much politics here, but part of the reason he is believing so many evangelicals are supporting Trump is that more and more evangelicals are buying into the prosperity gospel and are caring more about the here and now and its blessings now than about eternity. I actually think this is a, a strategy. Somebody once took a pencil. I should have had one here. Anybody have a pencil? By the window. Okay. Yeah, and that Satan's strategy here is to get us focused. This is life. See that eraser right there? That's life. Focus on that. That's all he wants us to see. But God wants us to turn the pencil and realize that this pencil goes on and on for eternity. But Satan likes to turn it like this. Just wants us to see that very end, the here and now. But God wants us to realize the big picture. So often this is what happens. When we become disillusioned with heaven, then we turn our focus. We try to find our joy. We try to find life in the here and now. Well, let's look at what Scripture says. What, what is heaven going to be like? Well, first, it will be far better than anything we can even imagine. 1 Corinthians says, However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. But God has revealed it to us by His Spirit. So, some people say, oh yeah, well, you can't, the Scripture says you can't even imagine can't even imagine what heaven's going to be like. So, so we don't try to use our imagination. 
There's just the scripture apparently saying we, we just can't know what it's going to be like. No, if we look at it closely, it says, but God has revealed it to us. How amazing it's going to be what he's prepared for us. It doesn't tell us everything, but it tells us enough that it, and gives us such a compelling vision that we can live for. Somebody said, you know, it'd be preposterous for an astronaut to have a mission to Mars without ever that astronaut never having studied about Mars. He says, yet in the church so often, with so many of us Christians, we do very little thinking or study about heaven, where we're going to spend eternity. Very little thinking about the new heavens and the earth. Somebody once said, since heaven one day will be centered on earth, there's going to be a new earth, a new heavens, the new Jerusalem is going to come down. They said, uh, just to picture heaven, just look around you and imagine what it would be like without sin and death and suffering and corruption and litter and pollution. You can begin to imagine with lush vegetation, no weeds. It's going to be amazing. If you're not in a beautiful place, imagine the most beautiful place you've ever been. Picture being there with special friends and family members, having powerful bodies, tasting fruit more delicious than you could imagine, and Jesus coming toward you to embrace you. There will be parties and feasts and much to explore. Can't wait to go there. In this passage, we see that well, in my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. I think the King James says, In my Father's house are many, in my father's house are many mansions, in my Father's home are many mansions, or something like that, this idea of mansions. Actually, it's, the Greek is really just dwelling place. Um, I think the, the fact that we translated that mansions or some have done that is, is man putting what he hopes for. He, he can't imagine. That's must what heaven must be, is to have an incredible house. But instead, the emphasis here, I think, is on the end. I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. That that's Jesus' longing, is to have us near him. And he knows that's what's going to be true paradise for us, is being near Jesus, seeing him face to face. Yeah, what's really important is where Jesus will be. In 1 Corinthians 13, it says, As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly. Then, face to face, now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. We're going to see Jesus face to face. That's going to be the most amazing thing. I mean, the room's going to be great, but being able to see Jesus face to face, to be there in a place with no sin, no corruption, with those that we love. 
Revelation 2.17, I've talked about this before. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden man, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on, on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So this idea in heaven, there's going to be millions of people, perhaps billions of people, but yet you will have, you and I will have a special connection with Jesus, a personalized connection. He's going to give us a stone that has this special name that just the two of us know. Nobody else is going to know about it. Such a beautiful picture of what God is going to do for us in heaven and how he loves us so much as individuals. It'll be way more amazing than even our marriage relationship. In Matthew 22, the Sadducees asked them a question, you know, saying, oh, there's a woman, she marries and the husband dies, she married somebody else, and then married again and married again. Which one's going to be her husband in heaven? And Jesus said, said, the same day Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection, they asked him a question saying, teacher, okay, so... Then at the end, Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels. I had a professor at Biola, and he told me that his wife, this was one of the hardest things for her to believe or imagine or get her mind around, that she wasn't going to be married to her husband in heaven. And she just didn't like that idea and couldn't believe that that was good, that God in this place had kind of messed up, um, that his, his plan, she had a better plan. Um, and you, I think we can, uh, we can feel some of that, we can understand that, but it's because we fail to see how when we're seeing Jesus face to face in a place with no sin, how amazing it's going to be all other relationships are, gonna, are just going to slough off as in, in insignificance compared to that. Thus, we'll still have deep relationships that will be significant. But when we see Jesus face to face, that is going to so far eclipse all the others that the marriage relationship will, will not be as important. There won't, it won't even be there. It's a little hard for us to imagine. Um, it's wonderful news for People that never get married. I've, I've often shared with single women. I said, well, just realize, yeah, yeah I know you st- many of them, you still long to be married, but in heaven, you're not missing anything for eternity. There's not going to be marriage in eternity. You're not missing out at all. You're not, God's best in eternity. It's paradise. And nothing's being kept from you there. God is good all the time. Also, we'll have responsibility, we'll work. In this Matthew, uh, Revelation 22, 1 to 5. And again, we think about in terms of, in the Garden of Eden, God gave Adam and Eve work. Work is a good thing. We were made to work, and we enjoy it when we work. He had them managing the garden, managing his creation. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. 
They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So yes, there will be worship. His servants will worship Him. But we're going to reign also. How can you reign if you're worshiping? Or if you're just in this unending worship service. No, God has much more for us. He doesn't detail all that it's going to be, but we'll have responsibilities. We're going to reign. He told the disciples that they would uh, be involved in judging and making decisions. Also, a famous passage uh, in Isaiah 11 The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's head. This little child's going to be leading the leopard and the goat and the calf and lion. Don't they know there's a worship service going on? They can't be doing that. This unending worship service. No, there's other things going on. The child shall play. So there's indications there's going to be play in heaven. Okay. Some have wondered, will there be sports in heaven? In Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven, I really encourage you to read it. He also has another one, Heaven for Kids. He thinks there likely will be. He said, it wasn't man that in, invented sports, uh, God. Um, but some people say, well, but, you know, when you play sports, you get mad. And if you lose, isn't that sin? You get angry. He said, he said no, it's, you know, it's, there won't be sin in heaven. Okay? And isn't it possible, like, you're having a great, Steve Kim and I, the other day, we played tennis. And one of our points was just amazing. And I don't even remember who, who won it, but afterwards it was like, wow, what a valley, you know? Yeah, when there's not selfishness and self-centeredness, sure, we should be able to play and do sports and enjoy it. And we'll have amazing glorified physical bodies. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on, the, on immortality. So we're going to have these amazing bodies. Now, some have wondered, you know, Jesus in his resurrection body was able to transport from one place to another. He was able to walk right through the upper room doors. So some have wondered, will our bodies be that amazing? Possibly, you know, we want to be careful in going too far in our conjectures. Uh, Maybe... Jesus' body is specially reserved and is different because He is the Son of God, our Savior. But it's quite possible ours could be that way. You know, at the rapture, it says we will go up. We're basically, we are going to fly up to meet Jesus in the air. I think that's in part why, why when we're little boys, why do we all want to be like Superman and fly? Even to today, I, the idea of just, is a wonderful thought. 
I think God's put that in us, perhaps, because one day we'll have bodies that perhaps will do that. I don't know. The scripture isn't completely clear on that. But it does say it's going to be better than we can even imagine. Heaven is going to be so amazing. We'll have these amazing, and they'll be physical bodies. The scriptures talk about uh, all the different things that you have to have a physical body to be able to do. Uh, And even if you think of the transfiguration with Elijah and Moses, when they came back, they had real bodies. The story of Lazarus, the beggar and the rich man, that story that parable or story that Jesus told, um, and he used real names for him in, in that story. But the rich man had a real thirst. Lazarus had a real finger to dip in the water. So it makes us believe that, again, confirms we'll have real bodies. We're not going to be these uh, ghosts floating around that we can't identify with. But it's going to be something we can identify that will be amazing. They'll be feasting. Truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. It's possible this is just really being figurative. I think it's more likely to take it at face value. There's going to be feasting in heaven. How can you have a feast if you're doing a worship service and playing your crummy harp? Okay? No, there's going to be so much more involved in heaven. Also, he's going to dry every tear. This is Revelation 7. Before this, it's talking that there's people from every nation, tongue, and tribe gathered in heaven wearing white robes and palm branches and saying, salvation belongs to our God. And then it says, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more suffering. There won't be evil. It's what we long for. Everything will be as it should. Life will work the way it should. So often that's what we want in our life here. I'm sorry to tell you, it ain't going to happen. Things are never going to go perfectly. There's going to be difficulties. God allows difficulties because it drives us to Him. But why do we have that yearning for things to go smoothly, to go right? Because we're created for that. And one day it will happen. It's going to be fulfilled, but it's going to be fulfilled in heaven. Revelation 21. Another, this is the view of the new heaven and the new earth. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, or crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. It's going to be paradise. The dwelling place of God will be with man. And we talked about that marriage relationship will... Well, actually, there, there is going to be marriage in heaven. The bride of Christ will be married to Christ. We will be married to Jesus. We will be His bride. And, the, and we'll derive so much pleasure from that relationship that it, it will so eclipse our earthly marriage relationships that they, they won't exist. They, don't, they won't need to exist. Also, I want to touch on this passage. You know, we've often heard this idea, the new heaven and the new earth. And um, some people are a little put off by this idea, uh, but theologically, there's going to be, or it appears, I think the best theology is that there's going to be an intermediate heaven. And that may sound really weird, but think of it this way. There's going to be this new heavens and a new earth, but it doesn't happen right away. So before that happens, our spirits and bodies eventually are going to this intermediate place. And then we'll have a point in time where it will be the new heaven and the new earth. Okay? Somebody gave the analogy. They said um, this coming of the new heaven and new earth would be like we leave a homeless shelter in Los Angeles. We fly to Denver to pick up some relatives. And then we're going to go to this beautiful home that we've, we've inherited in Santa Barbara. And it came along with this job that we've always dreamed of. That's what heaven's going to be like in this. Actually, a better analogy, closer to, more closer to scriptures, would be we leave our homeless shelter in Los Angeles, or this a little shack that we have in, in Los Angeles. We fly to Denver, pick up our friends and beloved relatives, waiting for them there, and then we return to Los Angeles, which is now called the New Los Angeles where the whole city has undergone a complete and perfect renovation. No crime, no pollution, no weeds, no evil, no litter, no sin. And we're given an extravagant home and the most amazing job and responsibilities. I think that's a better analogy when we think of this new heaven and this new earth. There's going to be a similarity to... The Garden of Eden, the way God originally created things, He's going to re, He's restoring all things back to the way they were at the beginning, before sin came in, and it's going to be amazing. Also, there are going to be people from every ethnic group in the world, and they're going to bring their treasures from their countries to God, or at least the kings are. In Revelation twenty-one, and I saw no temple in this city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by any, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. They'll bring the glory and the honor of the nations. Will that be products that they will bring in? The best products from their country to bring before Jesus and 
others to sample or for everyone to sample and, and be amazed at this earth God's created. Maybe it will be the peoples themselves, the different ethnic groups and their, their most cherished and beautiful songs or dances that they're bringing these treasures as their way to worship God. Yeah, maybe this is a little bit like a worship service, but not some boring, unending one where we're falling asleep. But we're saying, wow, did you see that? Isn't that an incredible song they sang or that dance? Or, wow, do you see how they made that? And we'll, maybe we'll be up there looking at these things and going, we'll be worshiping God. But we'll be worshiping by saying, wow, that is amazing. Look at this. That's incredible. Oh, Lord, you, you're, this heaven is just amazing, this world you've created. Some have said it'll just be, maybe our life there will be one sigh after another, one sigh of worship going, oh, look at this. Oh, come here, you got to check this out. Look at this bug here. I've never seen one like it. It's amazing. You know, we talked about already that there's going to be animals. We went through this book uh, with our kids, um, Heaven for Kids, and he talked about this idea that Apparently, there are going to be animals in heaven. And he speculates, perhaps dinosaurs, okay? But the lion isn't going to eat the lamb, okay? So the dinosaur is not going to be eating people. I remember I was talking at a table in Jingxi with Teo when we were in China. And he said, yeah, Dad, like, we'll go and say, hey, hey, T-Rex, come here. I want to ride. And me and you, Dad, we're going to be riding T-Rexes in heaven, okay? Now, I didn't find that verse in the Bible, <laughs> But it's possible. Somebody said, they said, we shouldn't use our imagination to, to uh, go away from the truth, but we should let our imagination fly on the truth. We should use our imaginations, realizing it may not be exactly like that. The scripture doesn't tell us. We need to have some caution. But God gave us an imagination. He in, wants to entice us with how incredible heaven is going to be. He, I think he... Loves it when we're saying, man, I can't wait to get to heaven. I can't wait to see Jesus face to face. I can't wait to see this new heavens and this new earth and this new Jerusalem that's going to come down. And these golden streets. Is that going to be real gold or is that just picturesque? Was that just the most captivating word they could use to, to, to help us try to see what heaven's going to be like? I don't know, but I can't wait to find out and have all eternity to explore it. And every day, there'll be new things that we see that say, wow, God, this is just amazing. God, you are so amazing. All day long will be worship. Not a worship service. There will be worship, and it'll be so rich. But all of our lives will be worship as we see this amazing place he has created for us. So what will heaven be like? Better than we can imagine. Dwellings prepared by Jesus, but most importantly, Jesus will be there. We'll see him face to face. We'll know him intimately. Our, we'll be married to him. And that, that relationship will far eclipse our marriage relationship. We'll have responsibilities and work will reign. We don't know exactly what that will look like. Some have said, you know, there may be project building projects and people have work and there's will be without sin and so the things that people will be able to build and create will give so much glory to god maybe there'll be space travel um get the book heaven he he postulates about some of these things just to say wow maybe that's possible let's think about it we'll have amazing glorified 
physical bodies. And the older you get, praise the Lord, man, I am already looking forward to that body that doesn't have a backache. You know, there'll be feasting, no more sorrow and suffering. There'll be these ceremonies where kings are bringing in their treasures to bring to God. Maybe we'll get to check out what they bring in and watch it as well. But it's going to be amazing. So, how should, we, how should a right understanding of heaven impact the way we live? One, it should cause us to diligently seek and yearn for heaven. In Philippians, Paul says, My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. To be with Christ, Paul said, is far better. Would you say that today? If you said, man, to be with Jesus in heaven, it's going to be so much better. I I think there'd be some people who say, you haven't thought about that much. You might say, hmm, if you have to wonder about that, you need to spend more time meditating on the scriptures. It is going to be far better, far better. But to remain in the flesh is necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know I'll remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ because of my coming to you. Then in Colossians, it says, Then if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. This word seek here in the Greek is the Greek word zeteo, which means to diligently, actively, single-mindedly pursue something. In Luke 19.10, it says, Our Savior, Jesus, came to seek and to save what was lost, to seek the lost, to zeteo them, to single-mindedly, diligently, actively pursue them. In Matthew 18, 12, it says, The good shepherd leaves the 99 sheep to seek the one that is lost, to zeteo the one that is lost, to diligently pursue them. That's how we're to be about the things above, about heaven. We're to be diligently, actively pursuing them, pondering them. Is that true of you? Do you spend time pursuing the things above? Setting your mind on them? If not, we need to change. Those things should be on our mind and in our hearts. We, we live with the end in mind because it's such a powerful idea. It compels us to live holy lives. Okay, It will encourage us to live holy lives and speed the coming of the Lord's return. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear. The elements will be destroyed, destroyed and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. So, yearning for heaven, looking forward to the day, a natural result will be we want to live more holy. We all want that, right? That will aid us in that pursuit. And it says, we should, it will help us desire to speed the coming. Okay, As you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. How do we speed its coming? One way, in Matthew 24, 14, it says... It says um, This gospel will be preached to all the nations, all the ethne, and then the end will come. So we know that's one way we can speed the return of the Lord, is making sure that the gospel is proclaimed to every last 
of the 12 or more thousand ethnic groups in the world. And we're getting closer and closer in this generation. I believe this generation clearly has the ability to see that happen. And I pray that we will see it happen in our generation. We need to speed the coming of his return. That's what happens when we begin to yearn and seek things above. We won't grieve like non-Christians and will we encourage each other. In Thessalonians, Paul says, I want you to be informed about those who sleep so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. He says you don't grieve like the rest of mankind. We still grieve. When someone dies at their funeral, we grieve. We're going to miss them. But we have joy too knowing they're in a better place, a much better place, and one day we, we will see them again. So yes, we grieve, but, but we have hope as well. We don't grieve like men who, who don't have the hope of heaven that say, oh, they wail because they will know, I'll never see them again. Their life has been snuffed out. That's what they believe. Okay? And then it talks about the Lord coming down from heaven with a loud command, Him returning for, for the dead in Christ. Then we who are alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Whenever we encounter therefore, we should ask what it's there for. Okay? It's therefore, it's saying, because we're going to be with the Lord forever, we should encourage each other with these words. How many times in the last month or six months have you encouraged somebody saying, hey, hang in there, brother. Hang in there, sister. One day we're going to be with the Lord forever. Yeah, we're, we have struggles and things now. Keep going. Don't give up. In 1942, Florence Chadwick tried to be the first woman to swim from Catalina Islands to mainland Los Angeles. Have you ever taken the ferry to Catalina? Woo, that's a long swim. Okay, she swam for 15 hours and begged to be taken out of the water, despite her mother telling her that she was close. She got out in the fog and once in the boat discovered that she was less than half a mile from the shore. At the news conference the next day, she said, All I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. We keep our eyes on the finish line and it propels us forward, keeps us from giving up, from quitting. We encourage our brothers and sisters, the finish line is just ahead. Don't give up. Keep going. Yeah, things are tough, but God is with us. He's never going to leave us or forsake us. So we won't grieve like others. It motivates us to share with others. If you read history, C.S. Lewis said, you will find that Christians who did the most for the present world were those who thought the most of the next world. The apostles who set, on foot, set out on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelists who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other word that they have become so ineffective. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. And Randy Alcorn makes this, has this incredible insight. He said, it must be maddening for Satan that we're now entitled to the home, heaven, 
that he was kicked out of. Satan need not convince us that heaven doesn't exist. He only needs to convince us that it's a place of boring, earthly, unearthly existence. For then we'll be robbed of our joy and anticipation. We'll set our minds on this life and not on the next, and we won't be motivated to share our faith. Why should we share the, quote, good news that people can spend eternity in a boring, ghostly place that we're not even looking forward to? Satan was kicked out of heaven and wants to whisper lies now to us about the very place that God tells us to set our hearts and minds on. Satan hates heaven in its amazing future, like a deposed dictator hates a new righteous government. He's determined to rob us of the joy we'd have if we believe what God has to say about the magnificent world to come. Also, we'll spend our money differently. Jesus, when he tells the parable of the shrewd manager, he says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself, so when that money's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. I think I told the story of a guy I met. The way he lived this out was, uh, whenever kids at the nearby school, he was a youth minister, whenever they were selling Girl Scout cookies or anything to raise money for school, he said, he'd tell them, oh, come by, come by, see me first, I'll, I'll get ten bucks worth, you know. They would flock to his house. He said, oh, yeah, every year he spent three, four, five hundred dollars on Girl Scout, all those chocolates and everything. He said, he said, but high school kids loved me. And when I'd invite them to youth group, they came to youth group. I had a great reputation in the community. And, And these youth were always coming to my house and we'd talk when they'd get there. Many of them would come to our Bible study then and get saved. He said, so I was using my money. Because those kids are going to be welcoming me into heaven because of the way that I used my money. Also, it will allow us to let suffering and impending death to unfasten us from this earth and to set our minds on what lies beyond. I've been thinking a lot about this as I see my father-in-law. Um, so old and at some point soon likely he's going to die. And I think about, what am I going to be like when I get old? Okay, And why does God allow us to get old? It's not a pretty thing, generally. Um, my mother-in-law the other day, she had a really tough day. And she was angry about a lot of stuff. And at one point, she said, she said I can't do anything. I have no value anymore. She, she can't get up to cook anymore. She loves to garden. She struggles to get out in the garden. Her back gives her so much pain. Her life seems worthless to her. She said, I have no value. She's struggling this. Why would God allow that? Because I think at the end of our lives, he wants to make sure that we are resting on God's grace in our life. That we're not saved because of anything we can do. And also that our value, our joy in life comes from knowing him being intimate with Him. I believe that's why He allows us to get old. It's for our sake, so that we can truly learn to enjoy Him and glorify Him. So, there's many things that happen when we have the right understanding of heaven. I want to mention just in closing here, the books by Randy Alcorn have been a great blessing. We've, I've read Heaven, Heaven for Kids, and Safely Home. Safely Home, I'm sorry, actually is a novel he wrote about a house church pastor in China 
a beautiful, great story and about how heaven, his vision of heaven, propels him forward. And these books, Deadline, Dominion, Deception, you can buy them now all together in the Ollie Chandler collection. Uh, really interesting books. This one, Dominion, especially, has had a great impact on me. And it ties up many of these ideas that we talked about. And I want to read you a part of a chapter from it, on this amazing story that Randy Alcorn has written. In this one, Dominion, it's the story of a uh, African-American family, the daughter is killed on a drive-by shooting. She's trying to protect her kids from getting hit. Uh, it was a random drive-by shooting, and the uncle is dealing with, with all this. But they tell the whole story of all that's going on, then they flash forward to what happens to the sister when she's killed. Her name's Donnie. A rush of sound and fury awakened her, and she felt a panic fear for the safety of her daughter's. But in the next moment, Donnie Rawls woke again, this time not to a scene of agonized confusion, but to a glowing, quiet passageway. Behind her lay a land of shadows, a gray and colorless, two-dimensional flatland. Ahead of her, something that defied description. The departure point stood in stark contrast to the destination, a fresh and utterly captivating place, resonating with color and beauty. She could not only see and hear it, but feel and smell the taste and taste it, even from a distance. The light beckoned her to come dive into it with abandon as cool water beckons on a blistering August afternoon. Wow! She sensed intuitively this place she moved toward was the substance that cast the shadows in the other world. If that place was midnight, this was sunrise. Up ahead was the 12-dimensional reality of which the two-dimensional flatland had been but a replica, a very poor replica, Donnie thought, the closer she got to the real thing. It's, it's fabulous, incredible. Though she had not yet stepped foot on it, already everything within her told her this was the place that defined all places, the place by which all places must be judged. It was the prototype, the master from which all copies were made. The place reached out to Donnie, playfully grabbing at her, drawing her soul as a powerful magnet draws iron filings. The colors, so many colors. The transition reminded her of The Wizard of Oz, where the film goes from black and white to color. But this was millions upon millions of colors. In comparison to this, all the colors of the earth she enjoyed so much had been no more than shades of gray. Now there was an infinite rainbow of colors, reaching as far beyond Earth's rainbow as sunlight beyond a match flame. I'm getting stronger. I can feel it. Only moments ago she had been so weary, bone tired, the way she'd felt many nights caring for her sick children, alone without a husband. Not exactly alone. She often clung to the promises of someone invisible to be the father of the fatherless. She felt now like the bride about to finally embrace the groom. How was she moving so quickly while still feeling too drained to move? Wait, she was being carried, carried in giant arms. How could she not have realized it until now? She turned her head and looked up at a sculptured face, appearing semi-human, semi-marble statue. This giant of a man had a face like she'd never seen, a face chiseled from rock, quarry stone features, She knew intuitively this was a warrior, a veteran of battles who had carried many wounded to safety. This is speaking of her guardian angel. 
And in the book, he shows that there's strong theology for this idea that each person has at least one guardian angel or one angel uh, tasked to them. I don't know who you are, but you can carry a load, that's for sure. She laughed that unbridled laugh, that contagious laugh which had served her so well in the difficult times. Not breaking his stride, Stoneface looked in her eyes and listened intently, the corners of his lips turning up just slightly. Who was this? She stared at his arms, brawny and strong. The muscles were taut but not bulging, suggesting he wasn't taxed by her weight, that she was a light burden or that he was used to bearing heavy ones. Maybe like her slave forefathers, she was thankful for his strength and felt her own body infusing with energy. She remembered her Bible. Lazarus was carried to heaven by angels. Was this an angel sent to carry her home? He was dark, not quite as dark as she, more like pure-blooded Middle Eastern, a dark skin, sun-baked to further darkness. She gazed at her own skin, the same yellow-brown as it had been on earth. Perhaps this wasn't heaven's threshold. She'd heard once that in heaven all skin would be the same color. But which color? Actually, she hadn't pictured skin at all. Maybe heaven would be a giant hanger for skinless spirits. But what she was moving toward wasn't ghostly. It was solid, considerably more solid than the world she'd just departed. The warrior's size and strength and rock-hard features made her shiver involuntarily. He looked away from the far end of the passageway where they were headed and gazed at her. She saw in his eyes both resolute purpose and kindness. She could almost see the rock crack and a little dust fly off as slightly unnatural grin broke across that marble face. Hello, Donnie. Well, hello to you, tall, dark, and handsome. You going to tell me what's going on here? (laughs) He smiled again, like one who hasn't smiled often but enjoys it when he does. Who are you, she asked. An angel sent to get me? Not sent to get you beckoned to take you i've been with you all along we're both going home home you mean home like in the bible just like in the bible i didn't hear a trumpet sound the trumpet comes later at the return and the resurrection this is not that day it is the day of your exodus from mortality to life she looked confused do not worry you will understand more soon are you gaining strength now by the minute, it's, it's like I had the best night's rest and I'm ready for a, the big day. I haven't felt this good since, since I was a child and it was my first day of school. Yes, I remember. I was there. But I've never seen you before. Who are you? I am Toral, servant of Elion Most High. But how? no more talk of me. I am only the bridegroom's servant. He awaits you. I must not delay. Do you feel strong enough to walk? Yes. He lowered her with a tenderness belying his great size. She tried out her legs like a newborn fawn. Immediately, the voices grew louder. The calls and laughter intensified. Her heart surged toward the end of the passageway. Donnie looked at Toral and grinned impishly. Catch me if you can. She took off running. She was a child again, scurrying across the Mississippi fields, eyes upon the home. The guardian behind her reminded her of her Clarence, her uncle, who pretended he couldn't catch her, her brother, running across the fields, staying just a breath behind her. The enchanting laughter beyond made her want to run faster and faster, then leap carelessly into the wonder, losing herself in joy. It's a birth, she cried, arms flailing in the air, gaining strength with each stride rather than losing it. It was a birth. She knew her own. 
She was about to be to thrust herself into heaven's birthing room. She realized in an instant that her entire life on earth had been but a series of labor pains preparing her for this moment. As she was once born of the world of cold confusion and blaring artificial lights, she was now being born out of that cramped domain into a wide open realm of warmth and natural light, the place for which she was suited, the world for which she had been made. At last, she shouted, the real world! At the doorway into life stood a shining being of natural radiance, but with the brightness of a million Klieg lights. The radiance threatened to blind her, but somehow her new eyes could endure it. This was more than a man, yet clearly a man. She knew at once who it was. He who had been from eternity past. He who had left his home in heaven to make one here for her. He who spun the galaxies into being with a single snap of his finger. Who was the light that illuminated darkness with a million colors. Who turned midnight into sunrise. It was he. Not his representative, but he himself. He put his hands upon her shoulders and she thrilled at his touch. Welcome, my little one. He smiled broadly, the smile teeming with approval. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the kingdom prepared for you. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He hugged her tight and she hugged him back, clutching onto his back, then gasping his, grasping his shoulders. She didn't know how long it lasted. These same arms had hugged her before, somehow. She recognized their character and strength, but she enjoyed the embrace now as she never dreamed she could any embrace. It was complete, utterly encompassing, a wall of protection no force in the universe could break through. This was the embrace she was made for. He was the bridegroom, the object of all longing, the fulfillment of all dreams. My sweet Jesus, she said. She bowed to worship in him and he delighted in her worship. Then he lifted her up effortlessly and gazed into her eyes. She studied his eyes through the blur. She saw in them things she had long known, coupled with things she had never imagined, and still others she sensed she would never fully grasp. You're crying, he said. He put out his hand and wiped away her tears. As the hand came close to her cheek, a feeling of terror struck her. A feeling she'd assumed would have no place here in joy itself. She cringed because she saw his outstretched hand was marred and disfigured. Your hand. She looked at the other. Both hands and your feet. He allowed her to contemplate what she saw. These were the hands of a carpenter who cut wood and made things, including universes and angels and every person who had ever lived. These same hands once hauled heavy lumber up a long, lonely hill. These same hands and feet were once nailed to that lumber in the shadowlands in the most terrible moment from the dawn of time. The wound that healed all the wounds could make them temporarily only by making itself eternal. Hands and feet of the only innocent man became forever scarred so that no guilty one would have to bear his own scars. She saw his pain, an ancient pain that was the doorway to eternal pleasures. Understanding rushed upon her and penetrated her mind as the howling wind had penetrated every crack in her bedroom in that old ramshackle Mississippi home. She wept again, dropping to his mangled feet and caressing them with her hands. 
He put his finger under her chin and turned her eyes up toward his. For you, he said to her, he said to her I would do it all again. She could not stop weeping. She was surprised she could cry here, one of the first surprises in an eternity that would bring endless ones. If some tears could never be cried again, she thought, then tears of love and joy and fulfillment were among heaven's pleasures. She searched for the carpenter's face as one searches a face she has yearned for, for which, which she has seen in her dreams as long as she can remember. On the right side of his throat, he saw another scar, a mark of discoloration, not prominent, only an inch long. The scar looked remarkably like she reached suddenly to the side of her neck to feel the scar from the kitchen beer bottle. She couldn't feel it. Gone. He smiled at her, rubbed his finger on his scar, which used to be hers, just as she had so often done on earth. That quickly, the scar on his neck disappeared, but the scars on his hands and feet remained. She knew they always would. They talked long, just the two of them, without hurry and without distraction. A circle of people surrounded them, waiting for them to finish. But she did not want to finish. She was held captive by one face. She asked countless questions, and she was surprised that he asked her some too, since she knew he knew the answers. He said to her, I have a secret for you. A secret? I thought there were no secrets here. She'd always imagined she'd miss telling secrets to her girlfriends, not the gossipy kind, but the good ones. You were wrong, he said simply. You'll find you were wrong about many things, and you will take delight in discovering the way things really are. But what is the secret you have to tell me? It is a name, one which I chose for you long before I created you. It will be private, a name shared between us alone. Only I will call you by this name. He leaned and whispered into her ear, Your name is. Those in the surrounding circle saw her eyes grow big, her, draw hang, her jaw hang open. They didn't hear her new name, but they remembered the feeling of hearing for the first time their own true name which perfectly captured everything they were, all their loves and longings and gifts and character and personality traits. As he gave her the name, each heard in his own mind the name the carpenter had once first whispered to him. Her new name was her true one, now finally discovered after a lifetime of groping for identity in the dark world. Her name perfectly captured her uniqueness as his special creation. It perfectly expressed her nature as his beloved, and it testified in some unique way to the one particular facet of his character. She repeated the name within her. It was so beautiful and so perfect, as if it were the name that had always been hers, but which she had never known. She felt at the same time free of self, free of the burden of self-preoccupation, yet she felt 10,000 times more herself than she had ever felt as if all the convoluted scars that had buried and distorted the person Elion had meant her to be were now gone. At last she was free to be who she was, who Elion had made her to be. The carpenter looked in her eyes, nodding, understanding the liberating realization of this moment. Those who spend their lives trying to find themselves never do. But you, you have lost yourself in me. In doing so, you have found yourself. He squeezed her hand lightly and said, Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. You are among them. This is the place I have made 
for you to shine. She smiled, unaware of the radiance of her smile, knowing who she was and and whose she was, and having no desire to look in a mirror to approve or disapprove of what she saw. There are many who wish to welcome you, the carpenter pointed to the crowd, still holding their distance. Here she is, he said to them. You can have her now. As he watched delightedly, friends and relatives swarmed to her, put her put up her hands for protect she put up her hands for protection before realizing she didn't need to. In a sea of faces, one pressed near with great urgency, a face and fragrance she had long she had never forgotten. Mama, oh mama. And it goes on about the others that she meets. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you give us such a compelling vision of the future. Lord, we look forward to the day. Help us to yearn and long and think about and set our minds on the things above. Lord, we do it for your glory. In Jesus' name.